This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. anything prepared unless you just want to talk about tax time which i don't really welcome to overdue it's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read my name is craig and my name is andrew and what are you writing off this year for your taxes i don't know i got married and laura had a guy and so we send him our taxes we take some standard deductions. You send him your papers, and then he turns the papers into taxes. He tells various governments of various sizes how much we earned, and they say, okay, you probably owe this much, or not. Yeah, like, so every year I, I go through the same, like, ritual where every year I'm like, okay, what I, I learned so much doing taxes last year. And so I'm gonna just going to go into TurboTax like it's going to be great. I'm going to write off all the stuff I got to write off. We got our mortgage interest. We got all of our all my home office expenses. Like I totally get it. This year is the year where I'm just going to go and I'm going to do it. And it's going to be done in like half an hour or a couple, not even half an hour, like a few hours. But it'll be fine and I'll feel good after it and it'll be great. And then every year around like the fourth <laughs> or fifth day that I'm wrestling with some specific TurboTax text box i'm like okay next year i'm just gonna pay somebody to do this for me i highly recommend it i, I just i feel like if, if tax time came more often oh I sure have less time to forget how bad it goes every year yeah i highly recommend paying someone who knows what they're doing i can't speak for people who've paid someone who don't know what they're doing listen but... i know what i'm doing kind of sure. it's just that the software is hard to use well it sounds like what you need andrew is a new life of taxes a new tax life i feel like that might be worse that might make it worse maybe yeah maybe you don't want to toss it all out current life like i know what i I know what i gotta do i know what kind of deductions and stuff i'm eligible for well i bring that up because we are talking about books not taxes uh, for the rest of the show, <laughs> much mm-hmm. to your chagrin, uh, mm, we're gonna—it's just not what I'm prepared to talk about. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> we're gonna talk about the new life by Orhan Pamuk, uh, which I think the translator for the edition I read is uh, Gunelli Gun. I think that's how you pronounce it. I I listened to a couple of videos and none of them were conclusive. Um, okay. And that this was recommended to us by Anthony, who's one of our Patreon supporters. More info on that at overdue. No, patreon.com slash overdue pod is where you find out about that. Um, More about Anthony. I don't know if he has a website. <laughs> I don't know. It's anthonyscool.com. It might not be our Anthony, but it's probably somebody's Anthony. Okay. Uh, so I have not, I had not heard of uh, Mr. Pamuk, which I was surprised by considering he is. A Nobel Prize winner, uh, the country of Turkey's best-selling author. Um, He's the first Turkish Nobel laureate. Yeah. Um, 
He is, yeah, he's he's well known, and he's also stirred up a little bit of controversy for reasons that that we can talk about. Sure, so he was sure. uh, born in 1952, and um, he's written a, a ton of books. Most of them, or, or at least the the like a representative subsection of them, deal with the kind of a clash between Eastern and Western values, which I think you can kind of see reflected in his life a little bit. He yeah. says he describes himself as a, a cultural Muslim. Which means he doesn't. That that's a group that doesn't either doesn't believe in God or just doesn't. They don't have personal relationships with God, but they still identify with like the Muslim culture and the Muslim religion. I think you can you can see that. I I have a little bit of experience with that through um, Susanna's family. Some of them are. I mean, they're culturally Jewish, but religiously, eh, not really anything. You, in yeah, particular. you see that with certainly with all of the the major Western religions, like. The large ones like there's versions of christianity where you you don't go to church but you love christmas and jesus is a guy you've heard of and you really are comfortable talking about that and not i'd have a beer you know. with jesus but i wouldn't like i would have let him rapture me you know what i mean <laughs> okay. you know what i'm saying yeah i, I get what you're putting down um and pamuk was born in istanbul and most of his writing no wait wait wait, wait. not constantinople correct Thank mm-hmm. you. And uh, that factors into a lot of his work. I think the his first book, Darkness and Light, I think is what the translated name is, was mm-hmm. like uh, set in a multi-generational like family that, you know, told about uh, kind of upper class society in Istanbul and, you know, its decline over time and yeah, and that's the kind of family he came from. Sure, I understand sure. one one that was upper class, but its best days were behind it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, he um, and, his, and his books, you know, he started writing in 1974. He went yeah. to school for architecture for three years, I think, but then left to pursue writing. Um, and from the you know pretty much from the jump, his books were critically pretty well received. So his first novel came out in 1974. Um, but popularly, he didn't really pop off until uh, the Black Book came out in 1990, and then there was another one in '94 called The New Life, which is um, our book that we're talking about this week. Yep, it is indeed. <laughs> and um, by by the early '90s, he had sort of become a, a notable figure in Turkey for different reasons. Now he is, and, and, and um, this is something that, that you, our listeners may or may not have heard of before, but um, Panuk, Pamuk talks about um, the Armenian genocide, which is this thing that happened uh, in or around 1915, where the uh, government of the Ottoman empire um, systematically killed one and a half million Armenians. Mm-hmm. Um, now this is, it's controversial because while many, many other countries and a lot of scholars of genocide recognize this as a genocide, Turkey does not. And it does not, it is not thrilled with people who do talk about this as a genocide and like bring it up and try to like raise public awareness of it, which is something that Pamuk does. Yeah. So this is the, the, Big incident happened. I found this also, Andrew, was in 2005, there was a complaint issued against Pamuk um, by an ultranationalist lawyer named Kamal Karinsis, um because Pamuk had given an interview where he specifically said, 30,000 Kurds have been killed here and a million Armenians and almost nobody dares mention that, so I do. And yeah, there's like a law on the books that if you insult the government of Turkey by, say 
just mentioning that there was a genocide um, <laughs> that you should be like taken to court for it. And what I didn't realize and this, you know, one of the reasons I love doing the show is because a it exposes to my it makes me look in the mirror and go, Craig, you don't know anything about this part of the world or this part of history, <laughs> um, because this actually lined up with when Turkey was formally and finally joining the EU. So there was like a, a whole crisis where, um, among other things that were being considered as Turkey was getting ready to become a full member of the EU. Uh, they were like, "Hey, this stuff with Orhan Pamuk is kind of messed up. <laughs> you should probably." Yeah, because it's both about the the genocide itself and also about how the justice system works and so free speech. Pamuk, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Pamuk says this stuff about the Armenian genocide, and then he is subjected to this gigantic hate campaign that gets so bad that he leaves the country before uh, coming back. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the the charges of the the charge of insulting turkishness was dropped in early 2006 and that's related to i think the the eu application yeah. process yeah um but he was uh fined what was it six thousands lira or something yeah like that. yeah to like pay a couple people for insulting their honor yeah the so process. i mean it ended up being in practical terms, I think for at least for anybody of of Pamuk's stature, a slap on the wrist. But still, it was a thing that he was prosecuted for, and that sucks. Yeah, and the guy who led that charge was later arrested in two thousand eight for like all sorts of awful stuff, including alleged assassinations and plotting an assassination of Pamuk and like journalists and stuff. Like that guy, see. Mm, like there were nationalists burning Pamuk's books and stuff. And even it's just, it's, it's weird how often nationalists ends up being a bad adjective. Yeah. I just don't know. It's just, it's just weird. Have you ever noticed what's <laughs> the deal mm. with that, with ultra hard right nationalists? Huh? Weird. Um, another thing we've talked about on the show when we did uh satanic verses, uh, Pamuk was publicly against the fatwa against Salman Rushdie, um, just like where he is in, in free speech issues. is It's pretty consistent um, throughout history. When he got his, I think I want to go back to the thing you brought up, Andrew, about East versus West, because it's going to factor into this book. And sure. he gave a there's a pretty good chunk from his Nobel speech uh, where he talks about this and, and the role of art. So it's a long one, but buckle up. Here we go. Okay. What literature needs most to tell and investigate today are humanity's basic fears, the fear of being left outside and the fear of counting for nothing, and the feelings of worthlessness that come with such fears, the collective humiliations, vulnerabilities, slights, grievances, sensitivities, and imagined insults, and the nationalist boasts and inflations that are their next of kin. Whenever I am confronted by such sentiments and by the irrational, overstated language in which they are usually expressed, I know they touch on a darkness inside me. We have often witnessed peoples, societies, and nations outside the Western world, and I can identify with them easily, succumbing to fears that sometimes lead them to commit stupidities, all because of their fears of humiliation and their sensitivities. I also know that in the West a world with which I can identify with the same ease, nations and peoples taking an excessive pride in their wealth and in their having brought us the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, and modernism have from time to time succumbed to a self-satisfaction that is almost as stupid. So <laughs> I liked, like, 
on the one hand, he's this writer who is, you know, he's looking at connections between the East and the West and uh, traditional versus, you know, modernist uh, movements. And at the same time, he is perfectly willing to be like, yo, this is making us all act stupid. Like, I like that he he's actually just being like, we're being dumb. Yeah, right. Um, and I, I think also because his he was married in the 80s and his wife was studying in, I think, at Columbia. So he spent some time teaching at Columbia while she was over here. Um, and he's come back and forth to America a bunch of times to either be like a fellow or, or a guest speaker at, at a bunch of American universities. Um, so I, it's interesting. The new life is relatively early in his kind of like, he, he made a shift to postmodernism um, after the black book, I think is where it's kind of where people draw the line, uh, which is ironically when his like popular book selling career takes off which you don't necessarily mm-hmm. think of for postmodern authors yeah um, yeah if you hear the, the word i associate <laughs> the most with postmodernism is not like lucrative commercial success yeah yeah um but then he he does spend a, like a lot of time dealing with you know and working in uh traditionally western countries and you know reading authors from all over the world and uh sees himself and his homeland as kind of on the border between the two and kind of wrestling with it. Um, Mm -hmm. Anything else that you wanted to bring up, Andrew, before we kind of get moving? No, that was pretty much it for him, I think. Sure, sure. Uh, I did... So this book, The New Life, opens uh, with this line, and then I found it funny that this became like part of the publicity campaign for it. So it just Mm -hmm. opens. It's all in first person. I read a book one day and my whole life changed. Even on the first page, I was so affected by the book's intensity, I felt my body sever itself and pull away from the chair where I sat reading the book that lay before me on the table. And that first sentence was apparently just like plastered on billboards when it was like, time for the new Pamuk book. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I read a book one day and my whole life changed. And I I don't know that a book has ever made me like leave my body. Uh Uh-huh. Except for that time in that Fear Street book where that kid got his hand pulled in the <laughs> sick. <laughs> that made me want to leave my body, I think. I did have that moment reading it where I was doing it on the train. And like, if I had been at home, I probably would have gone into the bathroom just so I could be cool if I decided to vomit. <laughs> yeah. I don't know that a book has ever made me feel... so. The book that is described, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try not to say the book in a way that is confusing, but The New Life is a told by a narrator. It's a book about a book. It's yeah. a book about a book. Um, we've read a couple of those. This is a book that kind of consumes people's lives, and you never really explicitly find out what's in it. Um, similar to something like The Sami's Dot, like video from infinite jest or uh even elements of like the house of blue leaves um just there is a mythology around this book that the main character has read and is reading and all you the reader need to know is that it like fundamentally changes how he views the world sure um he begins to he thinks the book is written about his life uh, he gives no supporting details, and he uh, 
begins to like I don't know it's it's sort of described as like all of his senses awaken he feels both like extra aware of the things in his life but also like separate from them um and it seems to be a thing that like he's looking at like man I don't I don't think I can be the same after reading this book the light mm-hmm. is literally the light is like shining on his face coming out of this book like He's up all night just reading Wait, this light book. light coming out of the book? It's just, I don't, it's figurative. Does he get, is he talking about his book light? Does he have one of those like, no, and it's not clips like, with the bendy necks? And he's the, not like know? getting a tan from the book, which would be one touch that Bamook does not explore. Um, I feel like if, if he, does he have a Kindle paperwhite? I'm just trying to No, he has, a, he has down a literal like paperback Okay, um, that he is basically becoming like a bad student, like he can't. He's supposed to be going to engineering school or something like that, and he just goes to class and just thinks about the book all day, which I, is sort of like when I got a PlayStation for the first time and just sat in class thinking about Final Fantasy. I think it's the my yeah. best. I think I've told the story before on the podcast where when we got our Super Nintendo, my mom woke us up like because we were getting ready for school, and she oh, showed sure. me that we had a Super Nintendo, no! and she sent me to school. Oh, no. <laughs> That stinks. And I rem- listen, I remember that. I don't remember anything <laughs> that happened in school that day. Uh, so so our, you kind of played yourself, Mom. Yeah, our narrator, um, later in the book we find out that his name is Osman. Um, so I'm just going to use that as best I can. Osman, uh, he got the book after like a pretty girl at university like walked by him and like put it down on the table he was at for a few seconds. And then he like looked at it. And then after she left, like took the book with her, he found it like on a shelf as he was walking back home that day and was like, well, I guess I'm going to buy this book. So Mm -hmm. there's this like, and he even remarks on it being a, a bizarrely, uh, simple, reason for picking up a book in the first place and especially for the book that is has literally changed his life as he is telling you right um so he tracks this girl down her name is janan or janan um and she's like hey what do you think about this book and he's like i it's changed my life i want to go to the world of this book and she's like would you do anything to find the world of this book and he's like heck yeah and she kisses him, and then she's like, now you're going to meet my friend Mamet and tell him everything you just told me. Okay, so this is like some cult stuff, so, right? This sort of? kind of like some cult stuff. If, um, so she describes Mamet as a guy who has returned from the world of the book and is and like knows things about it and has come back like afraid and... Uh, paranoid and kind of angry, and so at this point in the in my experience of reading the New Life, I don't know what's happening. Like I don't know, <laughs> I don't know if these people are real because no one, our narrator doesn't really interact with a lot of other care. He you know he lives in his mom's lives at home with his mom. His dad died the year before. Mm-hmm. Um, his like, I think his uncle who might have just been a friend of his dad's and like uncle is used as like a like a term of in, like just closeness. I don't I don't remember if it's a relation or not. 
Um, He died two years before. So he's kind of this loner going to school. And these other two people, like, he doesn't seem like he's ever met them before. So I don't know if they're real. Like, I don't know what's happening at this point in the book. Okay, cool. Sounds good so far. And it's also hard to tell if what, what they mean when they say, like, he's come back from the world of the book. Like, did he go in it? Did the book... Take, like lead him somewhere because they both uh Janan and Osman seem to think that Mehmet's not telling them something about the book that like mm-hmm. he could teach them its secrets or something it makes them like want to learn the book more and of course I feel like we've got a sort of page master situation yeah, you brewing think, you here. think that might be what's going on and so um, Osman, of course, has developed like all sorts of uh, intense feelings uh, for Janan, and he can't like stop thinking about her, and all he wants to do is be with her, and it's kind of wrapped up in his feelings about this book, and it's hard to tell where one ends and the other begins, and so he starts getting a little jealous of Mehmet, and he's kind of following them around, and he's looking out the window at school one day, and he sees them down on the street, and Mehmet gets shot, and it's very unclear who shot him. And where the two of them went. Uh, and again, I'm wondering if these people are real because no one at school is reacting. And <laughs> they disappear. And like when uh, Osman tries to like follow Mehmet's footsteps in the snow, he's like tracing the footsteps. And then when he walks back to school, he specifically notes that his footsteps have started to mesh with Mehmet's. Again, What's real? Who knows? Turns out they're both real people. They are real. They are are real people. He finds Janan's family and pretends to like actually be her friend and like know her to like try and find out more information from her. Um, And he kind of loses his mind a little bit. If you couldn't see that coming where he spends He's like reading the book and he's copying the book down like into another notebook. Like he starts trying to just write out what he's thinking and he ends up just writing the book word for word like into another note. And he's like, but I'm not copying it. I'm just like understanding it more. Is he like as he's doing that, is he literally copying? Like does he have the other the, the book open at times and just yes. copying it from word to word to word? And at other times he's just doing it from memory or like what's the I think it's more the former, but he's not like specifically trying to copy it. He's just trying to. I'm just trying to imagine, like, say you had yeah. <laughs> plagiarized something for a class. And oh, the, sure. And the, like, the board, like, whatever plagiarism punishment board <laughs> called you up. And you're like, I'm not, I wasn't plagiarizing. I was just trying to write out my thoughts and it just came out this way. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out the book is so good. I couldn't write about it in a way that wasn't the book. Yeah. That's like the, the best that, defense. The, the people who wrote the book organized the words about this topic in the best way they possibly could have been organized. I had nothing to add, and so I have just passed it on to you. Here's a question for the academic boards that clearly listen to our show. If Mm -hmm. I wanted to turn in an essay on a book that was just a long, a five-page quote from the book, and I cited it properly and just turned it in, Mm -hmm. is that wrong? Does that break a rule? If it's a really good quote, I could probably get like a B. 
I think it really depends on how well you can justify yourself. Because in, in the in the liberal arts world, I think anything anything goes the as long as you can make arts. a good enough argument in yeah, favor of it. That's right. That's right. So uh, Osman's not copying this for class or anything. He's just kind of losing his mind, and he's trying to figure out if he's ever going to see Janan again. And something just snaps in him. And he realizes, like, he realizes that she's left town. Her family doesn't know where she is. So he's going to go off and find her. And the book basically prompts him. He talks about just, like, he's a stranger in his own body. And he's just going to walk out of his house and leave everything behind. And you're Mm -hmm. like, cool, dude. Great. This is going to work out good for you. Mm -hmm. And he just, like, hops on a random bus and decides to just ride buses for a while. I don't know how if you like buses, Andrew. But buses this, are a means to an end. This where the means is the bus, and the end is where I'm going on the bus. God, this dude spends months on buses, and it's like kind of the part of Forrest Gump where he just runs. Except yes, with buses. Correct, correct, correct. And there are like charter buses, so he's like there are like there's some bad food and some like te- televisions. That play like American movies. Uh, I think the book probably takes place in the seventies. At the end, after the narrator has like aged a little bit, there's a date note that says like ninety two, ninety four. So sure. I think the events of the book largely take place um, in probably the mid to late seventies. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's again unclear why he's on all these buses. He's talking about. Uh, the book and how he's going to transition to the new life. Um, and he's like hungry for a bus accident. Like he's so uh, this happens a couple of times. He's riding on a bus and like a crash happens. And I don't, I don't know if he is trying to die but he is certainly trying to live through horrendous bus crash, or at least experience horrendous bus bus crashes. Yeah, I feel like if you're if that's what your goal is, then you should be riding buses as much as this dude is. Yeah, and so there's one that ends with like this super like. So this is some of the stuff that I really like about this book, um, where individual images are super potent. I, the plotting in this book doesn't seem to be. Pamuk's like biggest concern and at times I felt that I found that very kind of frustrating because the book is rather dreamlike and I couldn't really get a grasp on on what he was up to at times sure. mm-hmm. um, but then you get images like this um, it was then that I be this is after the first big bus crash that you see that he survived it was then that I became aware of the most magical coincidence or impeccable fortune the TV screen over the driver's seat was still intact and the lovers on the video were finally in each other's arms I wiped the blood off my forehead my face and neck with my handkerchief and I flipped up the lid of the ashtray which I'd slammed down with my forehead only a little while ago I lit up contentedly and began watching the film they kissed and kissed again sucking lipstick and life and dude just like sits down. People are wailing in this bus crash. And uh-huh. dude just like sits down to watch the rest of the movie. Like a drive-in. Does he say what the did you say what the movie was? I'm no. To... He's okay. never explicit about which Hollywood romances. Sometimes they're like crime movies. Um, there's a lot of violent movies. 
but it, also the violence always gives way to people kissing. Uh-huh. Um, and when, so he thinks about uh, Janan a lot as he's riding these buses, thinking about like watching movies of people kissing. Sure, um, I'm just I'm just trying to say like if if there was a uh, if there if you could tell me what the movie was, I guess I could tell you whether it'd be worth <laughs> just sitting down instead. Of, like maybe it was a really good movie, is what I'm saying. Okay, like what kind of what kind of movie would you sit and watch? At the scene of a bus crash that you just survived. Like, you're like, woof, I survived. Things are really rough right now, but I can't miss this scene in. I just think I'm not, I don't want to, I know you're trying to get me to name a specific movie, but I'm thinking more like it's a movie that you really wanted to see when it was out. Oh. But you couldn't see it. But now you're on a plane, you got nothing else to do, so you're going to watch this movie. That's when I watched Arrival, so maybe... Yeah, there you go. That's a good one. Yeah. That's when I watched I watched Premium Rush on a plane. The That's Joseph, not the Joseph same. Gordon-Levitt not the bike messenger thing. movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so these bus accidents happen more than once, and he, because he's just backpacking through Turkey, he is like, uh, sometimes he takes someone's wallet and like their money and their papers because they're dead. And, like, mm. he needs money to live. Um, and after a couple, he actually, two buses collide, and Janan appears, and she has come from the other bus. And she's there. And again, I don't... Did it also crash? Yes. Okay, cool. And so then they set off together to find Mamet, because that's what she's up to. Um, They're sort of getting romantically involved, but it's really... It, is painfully clear to our narrator that she is never going to get over this other guy. And part of the reason that she's maybe attracted to Osman in the first place is that she, he reminds her of Mamet. Um, and meanwhile, they're still talking about this book and how it's changing people's lives, but nobody quite, quite knows what's on the other side of whatever the book is talking about. Mm-hmm. Very hard to tell what the book is about. Cause the book never tells you, um, and they survive another crash together. Again, very dangerous buses. Very dangerous buses. Yeah, these buses seem time. like they... Do they crash more often than other buses because they have so many people who want to crash on them? Is it like a, the secret thing? <laughs> or are they just bad buses? It, it seems um, this, the roads are depicted as being rather dangerous. Um it seems like maybe some of the drivers are poor drivers. Um, you can kind of tell when it's about to happen because they'll look out the window and there'll be references to an unnamed angel of some kind. That is uh, a reference. The bus crash. <laughs> it's a reference to the in fiction book that we know nothing about. Um, and it's either an angel of death or an angel of desire, or it is some sort of like you're going through to the other side. And maybe you're still going to be alive, but you're going to be on the other side of whatever the new life is. Um, that angel crops up a bunch in, in their vision. So they survive a bus, tra- a bus crash together, and they meet a young couple who is suspiciously like them. Um, and they th- that couple is on their way to this town to meet um, someone who knows about the book. Uh, and... There are other people who know about the book, 
and are you know going to lead the charge for whatever political movement or or social movement will will arise from it. Um, so they have to they take these this dead couple's identity and go to this town and they meet Doctor Fine. He sounds fine. He is. He's also not a doctor. <laughs> oh, doctor boy. is his nickname that people gave him in the military because he like he liked to study how things worked and get really into the particularities of objects. Um, so now it turns out making fun of him when they gave him his nickname, or uh, it's it's like in a good like an in an amiable fashion, like oh, it's the doc. He's always right. you know tooling with stuff. He's into stuff. Um, he's pretty rich. He like inherited this big plot of land in this town. And, um, he also turns out to be Mehmet's dad. Cool. Mm-hmm. The other revelation is that, uh, Mehmet's dad, Dr. Fine thinks Mehmet is dead because his son's name is not Mehmet. And there was a car, there was a bus crash <laughs> where, Mehmet, who had a previous name, Naheeb, I think, uh, took someone's ID and started going by Mehmet and let his dad think that he was dead and, like, went to a small town to just copy the book into notebooks for the rest of his life. Who knows what's going on with Mehmet? Okay. And this is where we really start to encounter the, like, the East versus West explicitly in this book. So in this small town... There is like a presentation of, of there's like a gathering of, of what they call dealers, which I think are like merchants and uh, shopkeepers and, and things like that. Um, and there's an, a subversive element in those who are like upset about, um, it's like a radical almost conservatism of like, uh, we don't like Americanism. We don't like Coca-Cola coming into town. We don't like... Um, ironically, they actually, they, one of them, uh, is talking about like Johann Gutenberg and how like the printed word is evil, uh, because it mass produces, um, like things that, let me find the, 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 why the books that they like books that promised us the serenity and enchantment of paradise within the limitations set by the world. Those which the pawns of the great conspiracy, mass-produced and disseminated in their concerted effort to make us forget the poetry of our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Great Conspiracy comes up as we meet Dr. Fine, um, and he is this guy who is exerting political and, and other um, political pressure and working other angles to kind of combat this rising Westernism in Turkey. Um, and he actually, like... It, you meet you meet these ideas while he has he is mourning his son. Um, he is basically making a case to our narrator to become his new son to carry on this work when he dies. Okay. Um, like he literally is like, "Be my new son. <laughs> I think you could do it. You remind me of him." Um, and he lays out this uh, what this really compelling image is this. Uh, he doesn't like trains because and specifically he doesn't like the western version of time so in a in a traditional particularly um islamic country or community uh time and the tolling of different bells is is related to 
prayer throughout the day. And he makes this case that uh, Western, like, train-based timetables are, like, they stole our notion or, or his community's notion of time and made it about commercial forces and um, Western modern work and, and, like, the go-go, you know, it's not the go-go 80s, but you know what I mean. Um, yeah, right. And so he's, that that's a really powerful image of, of his, like, no, I want to hold on to my way of life. I don't like how it's changing out from under me. I don't like how, you know, I used to sell these products that I could tell where they came from. I knew the person who made this chair or, or you know, made this butter or got this milk. And there are forces coming in from the West that uh, sell all of the stuff that's branded and has, you know, dumb names on it. And I don't know where it came from. And it's utter cutting everybody's business and, and, uh, breaking all of our connections to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he is working, he sees his, he lost his son to this book, The New Life, which apparently, even though we don't know what's in it, uh, espouses some form of Western values or at least uh, some sort of reconciliation between east and west that is anathema to dr fine and and people like him and he sees he sees youth and he hears rumors of youth throughout the country falling prey to just as osman and and um janan have have kind of lost themselves to this story of whatever it is um and are not going to uphold traditions and, and values um and he paid all these people Dr. Fine did to track his son and then it, and then he lost track of him and then he he knew about this other guy who was sitting next to his quote unquote dead son on the bus Mamet so he's tracking every Mamet in the country who may or may not have read this book uh-huh and he gives all this. It seems like it would be like how common a name is that? It seems like it would be a lot of work. There's at least or like are we a supposed dozen. to just kind of ride the the uh, magical realism wave, yeah, or whatever, postmodern wave. Let's get into that because now, like that unpacks is a, is a good like. There's a reason why they're all named the same person. I, I think there's a reason in in Pamuk's like artistry where he is deliberately making it like, why are they all the same? They're right. not like the characters in this book are actually, I think, a little underwritten. If you if you are not prepared to come at this book from a from a more postmodern standpoint, what um, do you mean? Like, so are like, are we meant to see this as some kind of, I don't know, indication that they're all different aspects of the same person or the same character or the same type of person or like I, what is the what's closest the narrative? point of doing it this way closest i would say is same type of person um it's not it the book never like then pulls a Shyamalan or something and is like tricked you they're all the same Um, right but the blurring of identity happens a lot so like this idea where everybody's like taking each other's papers and pretending to be other people and doctor finds like hey can you just be my son person who's Mm -hmm. pretending to be someone else in the first place um And then later in the book, so what happens when this like list of Mamets gets revealed is uh, Osman 
is like, hey, I got to bounce for a week and like track down these mamets. And he doesn't tell anybody what he's doing, but he has, through the research, like learned that the original mamet and Janan kind of set him up so that they could give him the book and then maybe kind of move on from it themselves and like keep this movement going, but not have to deal with the the actual like life that they were living. And so he gets very jealous of Mehmet and he wants to go track him down and sh- and kill him because he's super jealous of. Sure. You know, okay. just like you do. Um, cool. Sounds cool. He's been given a gun by Dr. Fine and he's like, now I have a gun. And I he comments on this a bunch. He's like, I have this gun and I feel like I need to use it. And I'm walking around like an assassin because I guess I'm an assassin now. Um, and he he when he finally tracks down the original Mehmet, Mehmet has started using our narrator's name and that's the actual moment when you learned our narrator's name Osman in the first place is that Mehmet has started calling himself that in his new life um so again I think this is all about blurring identity and in this dialogue between east and west uh what is your own personal identity and where does it come from and how easily it can be shifted depending on where you're pulling your values from. Like I, it's the few characters that never like pretend to be other people are people that are older than our, our main characters, people who are of a generation prior who are not dealing, who who are not excited about the turbulence of modernity um, Mm -hmm. and and moving forward. Um, So like, there's other, I guess there's other plot stuff that ha- like there's a coda where Osmond's older and he's still trying to learn a little bit more about the book. So I guess this is where we can talk about what the as much as we know about what the book is. Yeah, because it's it sounds like and I've I do as much as I hate it when a work of fiction with an in fiction work of fiction (laughs) actually shows us the work of fiction because it's never good or interesting enough to prompt the response that it's supposed to prompt, you know? Like, I also get frustrated when it just, it's way too cute about showing us anything about the work of fiction. Yeah. Also. And it sounds like this one maybe does that a little bit. It it certainly does that for way longer than I experienced it being welcome. I think I ran out a little bit of patience for knowing what was in the book. By the time it told me as much as it was going to tell me, I, I was like, okay, that's reasonable. And I'll get into that in a second. But right. my experience reading the book, I was like, God, you're being really opaque, dude. Like, I really just let me peek in a tiny bit more <laughs> and get a foothold here. Because uh, I think you're right. Like, it's sort of it's sort of like not showing the monster in a horror movie, right? You don't want mm-hmm. us to, to know that. And it's similar to uh, the reason why uh, Studio 60 was not as good as 30 Rock. <laughs> Um, <laughs> because the actual comedy on your comedy show was not as good. Um, and if the show revolves around the comedy being really good, like it better be good. Um, so the book, which I think in fiction is called the new life, uh, shares its name with an, with a, a caramel candy or a caramel candy. I don't really say that word very often, so I don't know how 
It's a, it's, it. it's a point of contention in the Cunningham-Rosenberg house okay. because I correctly say it caramel and Susanna incorrectly says caramel. Okay, okay sure. It's not a flavor that I uh, had patience for until my 20s, so I never really... Oh, well, you, you can do caramel? That's it, not if it's... in the... I can't if just it's part of a chocolate confection. Yeah, it has or to be cake like or something. It can't the, just be you can't yeah. just eat a caramel. There has there have to be other flavors happening. I can't Man, just put a, your gummy, a caramel your gummy, in my mouth. Your non chocolate candy thing is so bizarre. It's to so me. bizarre. I know. Um, but so there's this caramel candy called uh the new life. It's like new life caramels, and there's an angel on the wrapper. Um. And later in the book, Osmond is reduced to like tracking down the founder of this candy company to like find out why this book was called what it was called. Um, turns out the book was written by uh, Osmond's uncle uh, Rifke, who again I said like I might be uncle from a just a fram- family friend perspective, and he was this eccentric railroad man, railroad engineer. Uh, who at a certain point in his life started publishing like children's adventure cartoons in the back of a of a rail magazine, like a train magazine. Sure. Um, and all of the cartoons that he would publish, he based them on kind of popular American like cowboy Western cartoons, but he would include like a Muslim character or or a character from Istanbul. Um, mm-hmm. And so you get this scene midway through the book where they've gone to Dr. Fine's house uh, and the narrator's looking through books that uh, Mehmet had read as a kid and he's seeing all of these comics that his uh, that he knew his uncle had written. Um, and there's one where, like, this boy Nebi goes to, rep- you know, represent... The Sultan sends him to the World's Fair to represent... Uh, Muslim children and he like helps solve some kids problems um there's one Mary and Ali and this boy from Istanbul goes to America uh becomes friends with this girl she wants to find her dad and like he kind of helps her come to grips with the fact that she's never going to find him and teaches her some uh some virtues from Sufi tradition uh and the boils down to this notion of injustice and wickedness exist everywhere in the world uh, what is important is to live in such a way that the goodness inside you is kept intact. Um, and then there's another series of comics, Petrov and Peter. Uh, one's from Istanbul, one's from Boston. And they solve problems using Eastern ideals uh, in Western settings. And their main goal is to build a railroad that, like, they endorse the Intercontinental Railroad of 19th century America um, mm. to connect the country because if it if they don't connect it then... Uh, it will the country will die and they have to unite both sides of this country similar to i think turkey went through a thing in the 1930s um dealing with railroads and uh so all of these two characters have adventures where they are like fighting off wells fargo or other corporations that are getting in the way of the railroad happening um (laughs) and we get a flashback to the uncle talking about for the first thing like having this culture that is beginning to consume Western media um, and Western like children who are growing up watching Western cartoons, like having 
characters from their own country and from their own traditions like woven into these stories was very important to him which is a thing that we're talking a lot about today in terms of representation which i thought was kind of cool um but then also he there's like this metaphorical power that that he lends the railroad as this kind of connecting of different groups of people and i can't help but notice that like there's this constructive building force in the railroad that this like guy wrote these children's books to try and uh like preserve versus the buses that just like crash into each other and kill people and don't <laughs> don't make anything um, like so- some public transportation is good and some is bad and listen i like trains better than buses don't get yeah. me wrong I don't think buses are like causing cultural conflict. I mean, actually, they are the the site of many cultural conflicts. Um, but the so he takes the the uncle takes these like children's stories that he was writing and tries to make this adult novel um, called The New Life that then like the government like censors and only a certain number of copies get out there. So you are never told what exactly of the like moral lessons from these comics made it into this novel but the narrator hits it hits on the idea that um i was primed to be so moved by this book because i had grown up reading these other stories and this was just a more mature version of those ideas so he never really <laughs> shares like what the exact lessons are or anything like that. Um, but it was speaking to him on a level that he didn't know he already understood. Uh, and that also, I guess, kind of explains the generational reception to this fictional novel um, in the book where uh, everyone in their like twenties is like getting obsessed with this book and like passing it around underground. And like, everyone's worried that it's going to like change the face of the nation. Uh-huh. Um And yeah, I don't know. I just, the sources are also like work from like the global canon. So the, the uncle is revealed to kind of be this omnivore of, of tradition that again, I think speaks to Pamuk's like, how do we reconcile an East versus West mentality? Um, Mm -hmm. How do we deal with the fact that we just have to, we have to acknowledge the West as this like, cultural hegemony that is insatiable um and and, like how do we accept that is happening and is gonna happen while still retaining our own yeah for sure inside that yeah this is this is one of those books where like i'm having trouble hopping in with anything that's not a goof because i haven't (laughs) read the thing and i don't want to like misrepresent any of the points that it's making sure but well so this is a question that i that i jotted down um, because I actually, I was really struck by some of the characters in the book that, in less bombastic terms, express their fears of like creeping modernism, um, and I think it's a it's a thing we see in America with the like the current dialogue between like coastal elites and like the the capital H heartland, um, with like parts of the country are moving quote unquote moving faster than others want to. Um, in terms of mores or the types of industry or, or anything like that. Um, mm-hmm. Is there anything you, Andrew, are like 
things about creeping modernism that you're like a little like, I don't know that we should go that way. The ability to create video and audio that mm. looks like a real person doing it should yeah. be absolutely not allowed. Okay, sure. I mean, like, like not let's not even talk about the stuff we've already done that has already proven to be bad, which yes. is like social media and <laughs> and social media and the internet and social yeah. media, like <laughs> you know that whole long list. Follow us on Facebook but, and Twitter. Yeah, but, there yeah. is like companies are making technology that can make that can imitate someone's likeness and someone's voice. And they're just doing it because they can do it. And because it's cool. Yeah. And, you know, typical for the, the tech sector, they are not considering what people are going to do with this as they are doing it. They're just, they view it as a, an inevitable thing that is going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And so here they are out doing it and it is going to suck. Yeah. And so what I was really responding to in in this book was like even on things that I don't necessarily agree with in terms of like there there are characters in this book who don't like print the printed word like I I can't agree with that, right? Um but I, mean, I yeah, our whole our whole thing <laughs> Pretty dependent on the printed word, but I certainly I I applaud Pamuk for like really distilling down what you just said, which is just like this is a thing that I don't think people are thinking through, and they're doing it just because they can, and they're not thinking through the ramifications, and so like that is a way to view an issue that I think is really like important for creating dialogue, right? Like if you. <sighs> There, there are certainly litmus test issues that I think that we're we're running up against on a day to day basis in 2018, but mm. there's always going to be like how do you what is the human feeling behind the opposing viewpoint? And oftentimes it is that like I I don't see the world that way, and I am scared that the world's going that way, and I can't keep up or. Uh, this radically changes how I view the way the world even functions and, or even just like, a, it doesn't even have to necessarily be a, a, I don't know. Like, like it can be a, I am almost certain that this is going to change things for the yeah, worse, but sure. there is nothing I can do about it. Yes. And so there is a simultaneous, like, there is a dislike of it, but there's also kind of a nihilism about it. Like, mm, mm-hmm. you know, I, I cannot by talking about it on this podcast or tweeting about it or whatever, make people not make software that makes voice and video <laughs> reproduction sure. happen. Yes. I still hate it and I want to tell everybody else to hate it. And I still want to make sure that hate for it is spread as wide as it can be. But Great. Also, yeah, it's like it's going to happen and we're just going to have to figure out how to make it work, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And there isn't I don't think this book ever really hits that type of nihilism there. The what's kind of fascinating to get glimpses of as it talks about university life is there's always like every other character is when they meet a new person is asking like what their political leanings are and are they affiliated with any specific groups um and it comes out of a much more i suppose fractious time you know you're you're talking about the 70s and 80s in the border of 
the east of Eastern Europe and the Middle East. Yeah, I mean, let's not undersell the fractiousness of yeah. our current times. Well, but yeah, I, I take no, your meaning. I, I, I think the fractions in the the sense that you see this in Europe also that like there are it's more than just two really angry voices. Like right. Um, and also the book, I, I say the Middle East, and I'll be thinking about this for a while. Like the book also like calls out the phrase Middle East. Like that is not a useful term yeah, right. for Middle anyone relative from that to what yeah. is always the, yeah. the first thing. Um, yeah. So that, that is, there's a lot of stuff in this book that is really useful for folks. Like just trying to think a little bit deeper about how other cultures and how other parts of the world are, are just seeing geopolitical movements. And it's boiled down to like a dude read a book and he can't imagine his life before when he read that book um which i think is is pretty impressive I, again the characters are a little loosey-goosey on purpose and at times that made for a really like unmoored reading experience where you're not really sure what anybody's up to or why you should care mm-hmm. um and you're not always sure what the next like narrative beat is gonna be um, cause it's also really like fluid. It's not, it's not postmodern in, it's not experimenting with form. Like, it's not like there's a random chapter that's like a play or like pictures or something. It's more like postmodern in, in its themes and, and voice. Um, sure. I suppose. But is there any book or, or work of art, Andrew, that you can't, that you think like there's a before and after for you? You can be goofy or I mean, like, like a book I read bef- and after. Like the world done, the that, world done the changed. The world changed when I was reading that book. Whew, I, I don't know. Do you do you have one while I vamp? Because sure. you obviously had some time to think about I this. Did, I did, yes. Not. So I jotted um, maybe Infinite Jest just because that's as a big it's book. It's so that, big that it can't not change yeah. your outlook, right? Yes. Just like <laughs> big so. in terms of size. You can't read that much. You could book. You could come out of having that, it change your outlook. You can come out of the book just hating books. Maybe that's why people hate books because it's so much work. Um, from I was also thinking the wire. Like the wire is a is a work of fiction that I think is substantive enough that it butts up against a lot of things, and it, it will forever be a reference point for for. A I lot thought of we were issues. just talking about books. Well, but I said work of art. So right, sure. you could say books um, too. If we're gonna stick strictly to books, which is what our whole situation is okay. about, this is gonna this is gonna sound like it's a goofy answer, but stay with me. Fifty Shades of Grey, yeah, was yeah. I think for not just for me personally, but for our podcast, sort of a turning point in trying to think about how people other than ourselves like thought about works of fiction, yeah. or like how how works of fiction work for certain groups of people or like work for certain moods. Mm. I don't know. Like it, it just, it made me think about books differently when I was reading them. <laughs> it did, it did not change my worldview because none of the stuff in that book is anything that any real person has ever <laughs> experienced or had to like deal with. But as a, as a book, I definitely had to think more about that book and then by extension more about the people who were reading it than I did with any book before that one, I think. Okay. Yeah. 
I buy that. Is that a cop out answer? That's no, it's not a cop out answer. It just like I just think about it a lot. (laughs) I can think about the like sexy light pouring out of that book onto your face. Is what I'm saying. Like the book is just radiating. On uh, I mean, I read it on a Kindle. All all fifty shades of gray, like displaying onto your face as you were reading about the sex room. I think I don't know if a Kindle can do fifty shades of gray. I think it just has. Four, four three, colors, maybe four, five, <laughs> four shades. Um, but no, well, the, yeah, that's a. I mean, ignoring if you talk, if you're going to talk about like childhood stuff, like yeah, yeah, Narnia was was, um, was kind of boundary expanding for me. Tolkien was that way. Sure, um, sure. Like a lot of the fantasy and stuff that I read as a as a kid, but. In within the context of this show, I think there's the show before we read Fifty Shades of Grey, and then there's the show after we read that. I think you're probably right. Uh, that'll probably do it for this week, Andrew. I think that's the show. Okay. Good um, one. Yeah, I think it was pretty good. This, I would be interested to hear from folks who've read other Pamuk books. Um, even contemporary reviews of this one seemed a little uh some were pretty good and some were like i don't know about this book but i can't stop thinking about it uh, <laughs> I, I think s- that's the point right yeah some of the reviewers were less uh had similar issues to me with with the voice of the book um and i think some of his other work might be a little bit more successful so um Folks should feel free to write us at overduepod at gmail.com if they have thoughts. Uh, they can also follow us on Facebook or Twitter, even though social media is evil, at facebook.com slash overduepod and twitter.com slash overduepod. Uh, we got a lot of great feedback in the last week, um, so I want to thank some folks. Carol, Kristen, Malcolm, Rice, or Reese, uh, Allison, Diana, Michael, Liz, Annie, Andrea, Ray, Martin, Daniel, Lisa, and Sarah, and a bunch of others for reaching out to us. That's a great way to, A, make us feel good and spread the word about the show. Andrew, or folks, bad, depending on what you have to say. Well, yeah, sure. If folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? Just my request is that if folks have any thoughts about like the one of us that they think is better than the other one, that they maybe keep it to themselves. Yeah, that seems reasonable. Uh, if they want to find out more about the show, they can go to overduepodcast.com. That's our internet website. Up there, we have links to iTunes, Google Play. It's not iTunes anymore. It's Apple Podcasts. I changed the text. I have to change my brain text. Uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and RSS. Those are all ways that people can subscribe to the show and get new episodes when they come out on Mondays. Um, if you subscribe in Apple Podcasts, do rate and review us because it makes us feel good and it helps the show rise in the rankings, helps other people find it. We don't advertise the show. We only grow through word of mouth and like what your face sees when you go to the iTunes app on your computer. So, <laughs> so anything you can do to help us grow that way is much appreciated. And then we have our Patreon page that Craig mentioned earlier in the episode, that's patreon.com slash overdue pod. We made changes there a couple of weeks ago that most people seem to have responded pretty positively to, which we're excited about. Um, among other things, we're recording a new podcast called stop Homer time, where we read Emily Wilson's new translation of the odyssey, a couple of books at a time. Uh, if you're listening to this, you will definitely get new episodes of that every other month, starting in May. 
But if you want early access, the only way to do that is to donate to us through Patreon. So that's patreon.com slash overdue pod. Um, next week, I am reading Passions Promise by Danielle Steele. It's very sexy. I can already tell. I haven't even gotten that far in yet. But it's going to yeah. be extremely sexy and also a little mysterious. Ooh, my yeah. favorite. Uh, <laughs> all right. Anything else? We good? No, I think we're good. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Uh, we'll talk to you next week. Until then, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.